folks, as we continue to pray for the um, persecuted children of God tonight and in the days ahead and months ahead, tonight we come to a passage where the Apostle John addresses how we can know that we are children of God. As you know, by now, this letter is really a, a letter from John to the church talking about this rich fellowship that we as God's people can enjoy with him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that regard, up to this point, he's been giving us a series of tests, acid tests, to test that relationship. It's kind of the outworking of the Apostle Paul who says in Philippians 2, work out your faith with fear and trembling. He doesn't say that so that we might uh, become fearful or doubt our salvation simply so that we might be sure that we are in this fellowship with God. And so we see a little bit of that in our passage tonight. But for the most part, I think that uh, John's main concern is that we would have confidence in that we would be amazed by and enjoy this relationship with God as his children. These are some remarkable verses, some of the most powerful you'll ever read. Let's read them together, starting in chapter 2, verse 28. Hear the word of God. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, each of us come to you tonight um, needy and hungry. And we pray that by your spirit, you would feed us by your word and at your son's table. That by your spirit, you would open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the beauty and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would build us in faith and fill us with joy. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Isn't that wild to think about being called a child of God? I loved, as you know, and I'm sure all of you have, loved our music tonight, but one of my favorite hymns we're about to sing, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Those words were written by John Newton some 250 years ago, but they serve as a testimony of every single child of God saved by grace, including John Newton. If you know his story, it's a wonderful, encouraging story. If you've not read it or read about it, I encourage you to do so. Here's some bullet points. John Newton was raised by his Christian mother and also a father who is a sailor and also an ungodly man. 
John's mom died when he was around seven years old, which meant that he was raised and reared and influenced by his dad. So not only did he become a sailor himself, but he became a vile human being. He became a slave trader and gave in to about every lust of life regularly until one day God intervened and saved him through this horrible storm that happened out at sea, converted him. And right in that moment, his life was changed forever. John Newton went on to be a wonderful pastor, a trusted counselor, and a prolific hymn writer. His most famous we're about to sing in just a moment. But if you know about his life, the words of that hymn, Amazing Grace, were not just describing a moment in his life when he was converted, but it was his testimony of a life lived after his conversion. Like even when life got hard, even when this Christian life gets hard, when he had to speak into those injustices that he participated in once before, when he had to love his enemies, when he walked with people who were hard to walk with as a pastor, and when he just experienced the normal slog of the Christian life, dealing with your own sin and dealing with your own doubt, it is said that Newton never lost his sense of wonder or joy over the fact that he was saved by amazing grace. Not once. Did he veer from that amazing truth? The same could be said of the apostle John. First John was written to a church, but it was also the testimony of a man who never lost that sense of joy and wonder and confidence in the grace of God. Even when life got hard, remember John's story. John was one of the original disciples. He was in the inner circle and he was, you know, tradition tells us that he's the beloved disciple. So he's got a leg up on us, right? But, but this letter was written some 60 years after the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of stuff happened in that time. Every single one of his best friends were persecuted, martyred, and murdered. He himself experienced horrific hardships. And yet, he remained filled with joy, confident, and amazed by the grace in which he stands. Church, he, he, John wants that for us too. God through John wants that for us. And we want that too. Why would we not to live this life and to end this life in complete confidence, filled with wonder over the fact that amazing grace has saved sinners like us. If you want that, if you desire that, John says two things. The only two imperatives in these six verses, one, abide, and two, see. Let's look at them in order. First, in verses 28 through 29, he says, abide. This is very important. John, again, addresses this church. He addresses us, right? He addresses us very tenderly. He calls us little children. Okay, And he says to these little children, these children who are surrounded and experiencing great hardships, Josh Preston preached two weeks ago, they were surrounded by false teachers, antichrists, these very alluring false gospels. They were surrounded by danger. And to these little children, he gives a command, but rather it's God speaking through John that gives a command. And we know that God never commands anything that's not also good for his people. And so what does God command us? He says, abide in my son. Now, what does it mean to abide? 
This is one of John's favorite phrases. Uh, this is something that Jesus himself talked about in the gospel of John, John chapter 15, when he commands his disciples to abide in him, to abide in his love, to abide in his word. What does it mean to abide? Essentially what it means, I think it's a real estate term, quite frankly. I mean, it really means to take up residence somewhere, to abide in something. He's, he's saying, take out real estate, make your mailing address this place and remain there, live there. And if that's what he means in context, I believe this is what John is saying. He's saying, little children, if you want to be like, you know, John Newton, all right, or if you want to be like me, your father in the faith, which he very much is our father in the faith, if he's addressing you and me as little children, he's talking to us as our dad in the faith. He says, if you want to be like me, here's what you do. He says, make your home, make your dwelling place, make your address. All right. The message of the gospel that you first believed when you heard it. Chapter two, verse 24, drink from the wells of the life and the teachings of the Lord Jesus. Make your home, your abode in the gospel. So this is kind of what the apostle John is saying. He's saying, do not be seduced by all the junk those people are saying out there. There's lots of false gospels. There's the American dream. There's whatever that pundit is saying and whatever this pundit is saying. Don't listen to them. Don't be seduced by those things, but rather make your home the gospel of Jesus and walk along the path that he has lit for you in this darkened place. That's the command that John gives us as little children abide in him. Now, why does he say that? He says that so that you and I might have confidence. So that we might have confidence at the second coming of Christ, that we might have confidence rather than shrink back from him in shame. Two important little parts to that verse right there. Let's think about them in order. Again, to abide in is a very important thing that John talks about elsewhere. Here he gives us an incentive to abide in Jesus. And what is that incentive? It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming is a, is a clear teaching about, we don't know when it's going to happen, but we do know that it will happen and it will happen suddenly. This is why the pillar commentary, I forget the author, but it says, that's why you don't need to worry about being on the planning committee. Just make sure that you're on the reception committee. We have no idea when it's going to happen, but we do know that it will happen and it will happen suddenly. But here's the thing. Most people, even some Christians, particularly young Christians, don't live in light of that reality. We get too caught up in the things of this world, the pleasures of this world, the hopes of this world. We don't live in light of the fact that Christ will come again. And what John is saying here is brothers and sisters start. Start living in light of this true reality. In other words, take a page out of the Puritans playbook. I've been reading a lot of the Puritans lately. They're profound prayers. If you want to learn how to pray, it's just amazing the things that they pray about. And uh, their theology is great. They were also kind of weird people. Um, They thought about eternity often. One of the things they did was they practiced dying when they went to sleep. What, you know, which is a little morbid. Barton, where were you tonight? I decided to stay home and have Sarah read over the final rites. It was wonderful. You know, she read me my eulogy, went to bed soundly. They didn't do it like that exactly, but they did do that. They practiced dying. 
Why? To be prepared for the day to come. What were they being prepared for? They were being prepared for judgment. Second coming has so many blessings and just these unbelievable things we can hardly describe wrapped up in it. But in the second coming, there's also judgment. And Tim Keller says it's good for us to think about that because it sobers us. When we think about judgment like the Puritans did, we, we, we start second-guessing these, these short-term pleasures in light of long-term consequences. So he says, think about this. This is what John the Apostle says. This is what the Puritan says. This is what Killer says. Think about this because the reality is, is that every single person alive, non-believer and believer, are going to face judgment. This is what the Apostle Peter says when he reminds us in his epistles that on that day, all our work will be laid before Christ and we'll have to give into account. And so this is what John is saying. It was his desire for us is, is that we would approach that day, not with fear, but rather with confidence, no ounce of shame. So let's think about that. What is he talking about? Shame. Scholars are kind of divided about it. No one comes down hard on either of the two possibilities. It could be the shame that, that some people will hear Jesus say, depart from me from I never knew you. It could be that. Or it could be the shame that, that some Christians will experience that, that Jesus, or rather that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, though Christians are saved, they will have their works burned up because they built on wood, hay, and straw. I'm not sure, but the principle is the same. John wants us to enter that day with complete confidence, complete confidence. That's the purpose of his book, after all, in chapter 5, verse 13, so that we might know we have eternal life. I mean, how awesome is God? He doesn't want us to wonder about this. And therefore, if we can have complete confidence on that day, the practical thing is, is that we can have confidence now. Have you ever met an older saint who's just ready? And it just fills you with, I want that. I want that confidence. Just think about, think about what's being described here. All of us have experienced some form of embarrassment in this life. We, you know, we put our foot in our mouth, which happens to me like once a week. And we are underdressed to something and that's kind of embarrassing. Or, you know, you get like an unexpected visitor at the most inopportune time. If someone knocks at the door and you look around and the house is like on fire and the, and the children are like naked with spaghetti on their, like we haven't had spaghetti in a week. How did that get there? You look like a disaster. And so whenever they ring the doorknob, you just kind of shrink back in shame that they hope they didn't see you through the, the window. We've been there. But think, 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 think about that day. When we are before the Holy One of Israel. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is, he is glory, the judge of her heaven and earth. And when we see him face to face, every single one of us will bow down. And we know that will happen because it happened to the apostle John when he got a sneak peek in Revelation 1. But that's what makes this passage so amazing. What's amazing, what John is saying here is that you and I can still have confidence on that day. Rather than shrink back like, oh, I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to be here. We can run right into his arms filled with joy. So what's the difference between those two postures? John says, again, abide in him now. And in context, what it means is, 
practicing righteousness. That does not mean that you are perfect or that you are righteous. It just means that we're making the regular habit and Brett Wynn's going to talk about the inverse of this next week, but that we're making a regular habit of doing good, that we have the desire to love Jesus and to believe in Jesus and to rest in Jesus and to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus. So the question is, how does that give us confidence for the day to come? How does that give us confidence now? It is not because doing those things, we're somehow strong arming God into blessing us. (laughs) You know, that's not true. It's because doing such things, believing in Jesus, loving Jesus, desiring Jesus, pursuing holiness, wanting to be like him, do not occur naturally in the heart of a sinful person of which all of us are. It's not like John is giving us these tests. He's saying, hey, study for these tests, pass them, then you can get off scot-free. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying fake it. We cannot fake the Christian life. We, We might give it a good college try for a spell, but you can't fake an entire lifetime the Christian life. It's absolutely impossible. And we know it's impossible by this very beautiful and important assuring phrase in verse 29 when he says born of God. And what he's talking about is the miracle of new birth that many of us have been studying in our big group Bible studies. John chapter three, when Jesus has this conversation with this man, this religious know-it-all named Nicodemus. All right, but what, what John is saying here, I think, is that, is that, that this miracle of new birth proceeds the ability and the desire of knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and wanting to follow Jesus. Okay, so that proceeds. The miracle of new birth precedes these things. So, so here's the takeaway. Here is the great assurance of confidence that John is giving the church. He's saying, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, if you love Jesus, If you desire Jesus, if your joy is wrapped up in Jesus, if you are pursuing holiness, however imperfectly and repenting when you fall, but when you want to be like Jesus, you can have confidence then and now because those things do not happen in you naturally. They're not of you. That's of the Holy Spirit, the indelible sign of the grace of God. That's what John's saying. And for those of us in here who are looking at verses 28 and 29, and we're just like, we're sweating. It's like, is this, does this really apply to me? God, please let this apply to me. Does this apply to me? I think that is proof that it does apply to you. Because if you were not a child of God, who did not have the spirit of God in your life, why would you care? But here's the deal. John wants more for you than that. He does not want you wringing your hands in this life. He doesn't want you shuffling your feet. He doesn't want you double guessing God's grace. He wants you to live in the confidence of it. This is a terrible analogy, but it's the best I got. It, it, I feel like it's, it's similar to someone who stands to inherit billions of dollars from their parents when they pass away. You know, that kind of gives you a buoyancy in life. Like I, the worst happens and I lose my job. That's not big of a deal. I'm going to be okay. It's kind of what John is saying here, but infinitely greater. It's what, it's what Paul says in Romans eight. Those of us who have been born of God, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been born of God. And what that means is, is that you are a co-heir of Jesus. You're an heir of 
God. You stand to inherit the new heavens and the new earth and all of the bounty of heaven. Most importantly, you stand to inherit the very presence of God himself. And if that is true, what are you worried about? So John says, remain in the gospel that you first, but you never graduate beyond your need of the gospel. Don't let doubt seep in, sit in it. Remain in the great news of the gospel and work out what the Holy Spirit's working in. Put your faith into practice. It's like when Jesus healed the invalid at the pool and he says, get up, your sins are forgiven. That man didn't say, thank you, Jesus, and remain seated. He's been that way his whole life. He got up and he stretched his new legs. What John is saying here is put your faith into practice. Not to earn grace, but to live in response to it and to fill you with confidence. So that you're sure, not to make God sure. He knows what he's done. What is true of you is true in spite of your feelings. This is for our confidence. He says, live out this face, this faith, which has been given to us by the amazing grace of God. So this first imperative he gives is abide. Now in chapter three, the second imperative we see is to see. Look at chapter three, verse one. We see that word see a better translation is behold. A better translation yet is to consider. John says, brothers and sisters, do you want to be confident in the grace in which you stand? Do you want to be amazed and in wonder of the grace you have received? Then see, behold, and consider the love of God, the love of God, which is shown both in what we are now in church, what we will be. So let's think about what we are now. Verse one declares what we are now from two different perspectives. Perspective one is that to be a Christian is to be loved by God as a father. Folks, when is the last time you just stopped and considered the fact that you were loved by God as a father? John says, consider that. It has life-changing implications. He first says, see and consider what kind of love the Father has given you. He didn't say how much the Father loves you, how deep our Father's love for us. It is good for us to consider that. Paul tells us to consider that. But what John is saying here is see what kind of love the Father has given you. That word kind is important. Uh, literally translated, it means from what country? That's what it means. And so Matthew uses this in chapter eight of his gospel. When Jesus stilled the storm and the disciples asked what sort or kind of man is this, that even the seas and the wind obey him. John uses it here to tell us church that the love of God is not from this world. The love from the father that you have received has no human parallel. It is unprecedented. It is the perfect love of God that you cannot earn, but therefore cannot lose because it was given to you in grace. It is rooted in God, the father, not in the object of his affection. You, it is a love that is not from here. So let's still consider what kind of love specifically is John talking about here. I don't think he's talking about saving grace. Right? Because think about it. God could still have saved us and not made us his kids. He could have saved us and not made us his children. So what he's talking about here is this grace 
the doctrine of adoption. You know, when God signed the decree and declared us innocent in the Lord Jesus, he also signed adoption papers. And John says, what kind of love is that? That this God who is perfect, he's the holy judge of the universe, not only saves us from our sins, but brings us into his family. Are you kidding me? What kind of love is that? That he would take a rebel and a wretched sinner like me and give me all the rights and the privileges of the son. What kind of love has he, is this that he's given us, that he has brought us into his one royal eternal family forever and ever. What kind of love is that? Is what John is saying. And he's saying, just take a pause out of your day and consider that, that you were loved by the father. He's made you his kids in Jesus Christ. We also see it from another perspective, which is ironically assuring, especially to our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. He says, you will know this by the way in which the world hates you. The apostle Paul says the world does not accept the things that come from the spirit. We come from the spirit. The world will not accept us. It's not because we are putting the world off in such a way. Sometimes Christians do that, but that's not what we're talking about here. By the very nature of you being in Christ, born of God, having the spirit, you have a completely different value system. You have a different allegiance. You have a different king. And even when we're called to love our enemies, they still will not receive us. And Jesus warns us of that fact. He says, listen, the world first hated me. It's going to hate you too. But this is what John is getting at. He, he says, here's the evidence of who we are now that in love, God has called us his children. And also the world does not receive us. And so when the world doesn't receive you, pray for them. No one likes to experience that. But at the same time, thank God for that. Because John says that is a sign that you are his child. Stop and consider of what you are right now. Lastly, he points to what we will be in verse 2. We don't have time to jump into verse 3, but verse 3 is similar to verse 29 of chapter 2. That those who are in Christ, abiding in Christ, and hope in Christ, that will manifest itself in the way in which we live. The pursuit of holiness is an effect of someone who's been captured by the amazing grace of God. Amazing grace, which is seen in what we are and what we will be. What will we be, church? John wants us to focus on two things, mystery and majesty. The mystery of what we will be. He says, what we are right now are children of God. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God right now. Sometimes we don't act like it, but even still, so we are children right now. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. That is what you are now. But what will we be? What will we be? Notice what he says. You are a child of God, and yet what we will be has not yet appeared. Think about how amazing that is. You and I in Jesus Christ are saved by grace. We have been given adoption papers. We've been brought into the family of God. Not everybody is a child of God. God is the creator of everyone. He loves all that he's made, but only through faith in Jesus Christ are we children of God. But John says there's something better to come. What we will be. What will we be? This will be is referring to our future glory, which we're about to sing about in moments. When we've been there 10,000 years from now, bright shining as the sun. 
This is causing us to look forward from our right now to what will be, church. Do you, have you ever thought about the fact that in 10,000 years you'll be conscious? And for the church, it's going to be an existence that is far greater and more splendid than even commentators know what to say. I mean, there's very few things that commentators say about that verse because what we will be has not yet appeared. What will we be? (laughs) That's amazing to me. What we will be. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know, but there are some things that we do know. And John tells us, John tells us that we know Christ will return. We know that he will come not in humility, but in glory and every knee will bow. We know that. We also know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Just think about that. John says, stop and consider it. What we will be, we shall be like him. Not that we are him. We don't become Christ. We become like him. We become little Christ in at least two ways. According to the apostle Paul, we shall be like him physically. Philippians three twenty one. No more cancer. No more old age. No more broken bones. No more aging bodies. No more wheelchairs. No more COVID. We will have bodies fit for heaven, crowned with glory, clothed in righteousness. That's what the Bible says. We will be like him physically. We will also be like him spiritually. Romans 8, 29. God's purpose, Paul says, is not just to get us into heaven, but to get us into heaven and to make us like the son of God. No more sin. No more shame. No more guilt. No more imperfections. I, I cannot wait to see you in heaven. You are all good, great looking people. I cannot wait to see what you will be like in heaven though. Just imagine that the person sitting next to you one day you will see in heaven. C.S. Lewis says, if we got a sneak peek of what the saints will be like on that day right now, we'd be tempted to worship them because they're going to be so beautiful, so splendid, so righteous, so holy. I cannot wait to see you people but it will be nothing to seeing Christ, which is the last thing that we know. We know that Christ will come back, that the children of God will be made to be look like the son of God. But we also know too, that we will see Jesus just as he is in all of his majesty. Brothers and sisters, what will heaven be like? Today is All Saints Day, which means that we are reminded that all of our loved ones who have gone before us in glory are there right now in glory. But what will heaven be like? It's not because our grandparents are there. It's not because our loved ones are there, that our best friends in Christ are there. It's not because of that. It's not because we're going to see some of our Heroes in the faith, like see, I can't wait to see C.S. Lewis. It's not because that we're going to see some of our heroes of the Bible, the apostle John or Paul. It's not because the streets will be paved with gold. It's not because there will be seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. Heaven will be heaven because that's where Christ is. And we will see him. I've done maybe 12 or 13 funerals in my career. Only twice though, I've had the privilege 
of being with someone on their deathbed. And in both of those instances, they did not merely say, I can't wait to get to heaven. They said that. But both of them ended, I just can't wait to see Jesus. And the apostle John says right here for the child of God, that is what's in store for you. That's what's in store for me. And that's what's in store for you. Indescribable joy. I love what the apostle Paul says in first Corinthians two nine. He says, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. Neither has it entered into the imaginations and heart of man, the good things that God has in store for us. That means if you get these sanctified minds of like, you know, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, you have a redeemed Spielberg there and they get together in a room to try to pitch this thing. They will not come close to showing how amazing it will be for the child of God. Because it has not yet appeared. And John says, this is what's in store for you. And when we set our hope on that, when we set our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, our life begins to change. We are filled with confidence. We are filled with overwhelming joy. And we even begin to pursue holiness. Living the life of Christ, not to earn it, but because we've already been given it. And we are just living a life of response to God's amazing grace. John says, little children, do you want to be confident in this day and on the day to come? Do you want to be filled with joy? Do you want to be filled with wonder? Abide in the gospel. Don't leave it. Just stay there. Consider the love of God and set your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who invites us to this table tonight in love. So brothers and sisters, let us come to this table, praising the God that we will be praising 10,000 years from now for making us his children. Let us pray. Heavenly father, we are so grateful to you for who you are and for what you have done not only for making us your kids, but for what we will be on that great day to come. Build our faith, O God. Fill us with joy. Fill us with confidence, not based on anything about us, but everything about who you are and what you have done for our sake, your children. In Christ we pray. Amen.